0: But now, I'm joined by William in studio. And William is uh, a very interesting gentleman who's uh, led a very interesting life. uh, And he has just brought a new trilogy of books. It's the Kirkwood Trilogy. Good morning, William.
1: Good morning, Alan.
0: Lovely to talk to you. You can first off chat to me about your journey to Wexford and how you ended up living here, if you don't mind, please.
1: Well, I think basically it's Wexford strawberries. (laughs) But the other reason is my wife is Irish... Yeah. And we fell in love with Wexford, County Wexford.
0: And that's it, the strawberries did it the for you? The
1: strawberries and my Irish wife, my lovely Irish wife.
0: So the journey then across, so you had obviously spent most most of your life in South Africa, or what's the story? I was
1: born in South Africa, yes, in a place called Durban, okay, on the east coast of South Africa.
0: So that journey then, the decision to come to Ireland was based on what?
1: Well, we were getting old. We got a little bit bored with being held up at gunpoint once and we decided to say to ourselves, well, that's enough.
0: (laughs) Now, that in itself, I can't let that one go. Uh, (laughs) Held up at gunpoint more than once. What happened?
1: No, not more than once. Once. Once, yes. We were actually broken into and it just got a little bit tedious.
0: And how long ago was this, that, that this gun incident happened?
1: Uh, that must have been about 2005, 2006. I see.
0: Can you talk to me about your early life? Because you, you lived in an old colonial hilltop house with acres of garden. What was your childhood like?
1: Wonderful. <laughs> um, very large place. I mean, it was a rambling um, ex-colonial house, post-colonial house, on top of a cliff. So we had beautiful views of the sea and um, the Umgaini River. Um, We brought up with this almost idyllic um, life of pets. We had a donkey or two um, to mow the lawn because the lawns were so large. At the edge of the property, there was a lot of indigenous bush. We had monkeys which popped up and the occasional um, deer which would come up when it was misty and start eating the leaves down at the bottom of the garden. Beautiful. Beautiful.
0: Beautiful. So there was obviously a military aspect to your formative years then, and that came, I believe, through your father. Through my father. Yeah, who had a busy life. He fought in East Africa, uh, and then he began farming in Zululand. I- I'd love to know more about your dad.
1: Right. I didn't know much about him either, unfortunately. Did you not? Why? Um, Well, basically, I did, because we grew up with him, but he never spoke about his wartime experiences in East Africa, the Forgotten War, as Mm. it's called, Mm. um, where more people died of disease, um, uh, poisonous snakes, wild animals, and starvation than being shot down by the enemy. And that ha- that applied to both sides. In fact, I think both sides just sort of eventually wound down to standstill because of the conditions: no roads, jungle, <laughs> and everything else.
0: So, when the wars he he fought in, then did he share anything with you on them?
1: He said only to me once, when I refused to eat my porridge, "You should be very pleased to have food in front of you." We had to eat grass for five days because we didn't have any food. We starved. <laughs> and this was in what conflict, did they tell you? That was the 1914-18 war in East Africa, the Germans against the English and the South Africans.
0: I mean, that that is a fabulous story in itself. Then things took a turn for the worse, did they, when the Great Depression hit, uh, did it?
1: Well, he ca- he came out of the uh, First World War and... Um, Decided to go farming, not a clue of what farming was all about. Got some, inherited some money, fortunately, and then um, Zululand, which had been reserved for the Zulus after the the uh, Anglo-Zulu War, yeah. uh, had been thro- northern Zululand was thrown open to certain settlers. So he took this opportunity of uh, going farming cotton and cane, sugar cane. Right. In a place called. You'll uh, um, come to you. Okay.
0: <laughs> where, uh, I mean, you were born. You don't want to go too much into the age, but you arrived on the scene. Were you an only child, or have you no, brothers? No, in-
1: my sister was about four years young, four years older than I was. Okay. And your mam then, your mother. Tell me about her. I think she was from Cornwall. Cornwall. She is. Um, her mother was from St Ives, Cornwall. Yeah. And my father was originally from Scotland, but he did immigrate to South Africa.
0: Right. So your memories as a child are all South African based, are they? Yeah. Did yeah. you come back to Britain at any stage?
1: I, yes, I went to study in London uh, on a scholarship, and then I came back to South Africa. So somewhere along the
0: line, in, in, in a hectic life for you, you were actually involved in media, so let's look at your career path then. <laughs> so when, when you became a young man and you had to forge a career, what did you do?
1: I went to a newspaper and told them I wanted a job. And I started working for the Natal Daily News, marvellous place in Durban. Okay. Um, and then I heard of a job going in Bloemfontein called, in a newspaper called The Friend Newspapers, which was founded by a chap called Rudyard Kipling. And um, I moved there with my wife um, and spent many happy years there learning about the other side of, of the uh, population.
0: OK. You would have been in South Africa then at the height of apartheid.
1: Yes. What was that like? Dreadful. But, uh, but bear in mind that um, South Africans of my age group we were born into a kind of colonial, post-colonial attitude towards, with respect, black people and uh, the indigenous, at least the uh, indentured Indians, which were brought in to work on the sugar fields. Mm. And unfortunately, they're always regarded as sort of second-class citizens. So we were, we were almost grew into that. Right. Apartheid was a kind of legalized version of the same thing. And,
0: uh, I mean, do you feel, feel that you would at any stage have been pro what was going on, or were you always, I mean, for example, somebody like Nelson Mandela, when he came on the scene or before him, Steve Biko and these people, where did you stand on, on leaders like this?
1: Frankly, left of centre. <laughs> we were very sympathetic. Were you? And yes. yes, and we nearly got caught once or twice in, in uh, doing some, trying to help them. Really? No. Yeah
0: you felt that what was going on there was fundamentally wrong.
1: Very much so, yes.
0: So you were supportive, yeah. Even though perhaps you were being... Were you being brainwashed in a different
1: direction, or what were you being... There were attempts to brainwash the white population to convince them that they were the chosen race, and the rest were unimportant. Yeah. But we just did not believe it, and we took measures to do something about it. Where were
0: you on the day that Nelson Mandela took his freedom walk? Ah... Can you remember? Uh,
1: We were in Johannesburg. We were watching it on television.
0: Yeah. How
1: did you feel? Wonderful. Yeah. I think it was a great moment when um, a vote, a referendum was held, whether they should change the Constitution in terms of the admission of all peoples with equal rights. Um, That actual witnessing of these long, long cues of... Everyone, all jumbled up together, blacks, whites and everything else in between, queuing up to vote right. for the first time, many of them.
0: How do you think South Africa has progressed? The fact that you've had to leave because of this uh, uh, attack on you, um, would you have stayed if this attack hadn't happened? Or was always your plan
1: to, to, to leave? Yes, I think in fairness, um, because the indigenous blacks were suppressed for so long, it was only right that every opportunity should have been given to them once there was a change of government to rise and mm. take over white man jobs. Mm. It became increasingly difficult to actually, for many people, to actually find a job if they were white. Right. Which was fair enough and understandable. So the tables kind of turned. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you decided to, to to move. Did you stick with journalism for your entire career or did you do something Yeah, I
1: else? had a public relations company that specialised in various industries like aluminium, tea, um, nutrition and so on.
0: To highlight the work that was going on there. Yeah. Did you end up having children?
1: Yes, yeah. um, my daughter Siobhan and my son Kirkwood.
0: And where are they?
1: Kirkwood is in London. He's a specialist in uh, Chinese furniture, of all things, wow. ancient Chinese furniture, which he spots and then restores themselves to all these auction houses. And your daughter? My daughter Siobhan was killed in a road accident in the Lake District uh, before we came to to Ireland. Really, just recently? Uh, well, it yeah. was about 25 years ago now. I see, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. And your wife, is she still with you?
1: Of course. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, okay. Kirkwood you've mentioned there, which leads me very nicely into three books, which I know you want to really plug because you haven't come without uh, gifts, but uh, the, the Kirkwood trilogy, what is this all about?
1: It um, tells the story of a mythical, so-called mythical, but based on fact, um, Kirkwood family who started farming in Zululand, <laughs> uh, went through the Depression, had to give up their farm, had to resettle into Durban, have children, um, was exposed to the changing times yeah. between the wars, the Depression, the actual treatment, the exasperation of the treatment of indigenous, at least indentured Indians, and also the indigenous Zulus. Um, and then eventually, you and the son joins up and uh, joins eventually in Addis Ababa, uh, the Springbok Legion, which was a legion formed by ex-servicemen to uh, look after the equal rights of all ex-servicemen, yep. regardless of race or creed or colour. Right.